0: netcasts you love
1: from people you trust
0: this is Tweet. audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new winamp for android featuring wireless sync and one-click itunes import now with free daily music downloads and full-length cd listening parties download it for free at winamp.com android Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 371. Recorded September 26th, 2012. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 151. It's time for Security Now, the show that uh, protects you and your loved ones and your privacy and all that jazz online with this guy right here, our explainer-in-chief, our security guru, Mr. Steve Gibson of GRC.com. Steve was, of course, the guy who uh, discovered spyware in the first place, coined the term spyware, wrote the first anti-spyware app. He's also the author of Spinrite, the world's best hard drive maintenance utility, so he's an expert on hard drives. And Joins us every week. I don't really need to introduce you, except there may be some new people in here listening. We welcome you all.
1: I know that we do get new people oh, from yeah. time to time. I think probably there's a, there's, that we have, certainly we have people who are dedicated long-time listeners, but there's also some churn. There's people who get busy and sort of drop off the rolls and and new new people coming along. There was a question that I selected today about... SSL authentication and man-in-the-middle stuff. And I thought, well, you know, we've discussed it, but it keeps coming up. And so that says to me it's an important issue and it's worth giving it a little bit of time. And I always try, even for the people who believe they, they know this as well as I do and very well may, try to come up with some new information even when I readdress things that we've talked about before. So... I think I have that, and boy, we had a busy week. Some weeks, not so busy. This week, lots of fun stuff to talk about. Um, of course, two days after we recorded last week's episode with Mark Rusanovich, um, which we got a great bunch of great feedback about, by the way. Everyone really enjoyed having Mark on, so uh, that was neat. Um, two days after that, Microsoft did release a formal patch for Internet Explorer, which they pushed out through, you know, this is an out-of-cycle patch they pushed out through their Windows Update facility. So we were talking about this this bad vulnerability that IE had. And at the time there was only the the little Microsoft fix-it deal that would shut that down. But and and um you know and wait, no I'm confusing myself. That was different. <laughs> this one would they they were recommending the the um, an enhanced experience security that that, that Emmet deal, which it turns out didn't really close it down very well. So the only real advice was uh, don't use IE. So they, as a consequence of this and the fact that this was being actively exploited in the wild, they pushed out an out-of-cycle patch. It fixed not only that but four other privately reported vulnerabilities. They 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 wrote that. The security update resolves – actually, I'll paraphrase. The security update resolves one publicly disclosed, which is the one we've been talking about, and four privately reported vulnerabilities in Internet Explorer. The most severe vulnerabilities could allow remote code execution if a user views a specially crafted web page using Internet Explorer. An attacker who successfully exploited any of these vulnerabilities could gain the same user rights as the current user. You know, blah, blah, blah. We've heard that all before. This update is rated critical for IE 6, 7, 8, and 9 on Windows clients and moderate for IE 6, 7, 8, and 9 on Windows servers. And that's because under uh, in Windows servers, the uh, Internet Explorer runs autom- automatically within a much more constrained environment. So it can do less damage there. And it, under no circumstances is IE 10 affected. Actually, IE10 is not affecting many people's lives at this point. So. It's, not a, it's not out yet. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so uh, so that's been taken care of pretty quickly. However, uh, we will in a second be discussing – well, let's jump to it right now. I'll, I'll do this a little bit out of sequence. Um, we have another massive Java exploit. What? Already? Yes. Yeah, well, Leo, that, that was last a,
0: week. Huh? <laughs> this is a new week, so this is a this is a new one, not one you've referred
1: to before. Never referred oh, to this before, Louise. This is from uh, Adam Gaudiak of Security Explorations, and this is either their fiftieth or fifty-first exploit um, that they have found. Wow, they should they have were a cake. <laughs> they, 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 well, they ought to, you know, Oracle should be paying them. I, you know, it's like, come on, yeah. let's get this fixed. Um, okay. So this one is really significant because it affects all Java versions since 5 which is the last eight years worth wow. of Java, which is all of five, all of six, and and what we have so far of seven, and due to the 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 back reach of this problem, they're estimating. You know, when you when you update or install Java, it brags about how it's in three billion devices, and then it you know goes yeah, and yes. tells you all the things. It's like in your shoes and yeah. all kind of, everywhere, yeah. um, so. The estimate is due to the back reach and the depth of Java's reach, uh, maybe a billion users. Well, and people don't
0: update their the shoes very often, so the chances no, are you're, you're running s- the old Java in there. You, uh, you exactly.
1: Yeah, and you know you might get tripped up. Um, <laughs> nice, so nice. <laughs> uh, they, uh, so Adam wrote that the impact of this issue is critical. We were able to successfully exploit it and achieve a complete Java security sandbox bypass <sighs> in the environments of Java SE 5, 6, and 7. Uh, Adam wrote that security explorations, his group, successfully pulled off the exploit on a fully patched Windows 7 32-bit computer in Firefox, Chrome i.e. Opera and Safari. Although testing was limited to Windows 7 32-bit, Gaudiak told Computer World that the flaw would be exploitable on any machine with Java 5, 6, or 7 enabled. Now, now
0: presumably on those browsers like Chrome and Safari, it said, I would like to run Java now. Is that okay, right? Did it bypass that? Well,
1: if your browser asks you then yes okay now this is no, note also this is i've just uh, they were messing with it in windows 7 32 bit but also 64 bit windows mac os 10 linux wow. and solaris <laughs> so this is also cross platform yeah. this is ba- this is you know a core vulnerability in the in in it's actually it's an exploitation of java's type management. It's not like... It's right once
0: exploit everywhere, as we said last time. The beauty of Java.
1: So, last time they advised Oracle of a problem, Oracle ignored them for four months and then we had that really bad zero-day Java exploit as a consequence of Oracle sitting on their whatever they were sitting on (laughs) for those four months. Um... They've advised Oracle. They've given them technical details. Um, they've, they've given them uh, proof of concept code. And so we'll see how long Oracle takes to respond. Um, it's not clear whether what little has been divulged is enough for bad guys to go duplicate it. But we do know that it's in Java's type management. We know that it's been there ...for eight years. So there's some clues. We'll see now who's first. The bad guys exploiting it? Well, the the other thing that can happen... ...we're seeing evidence, as we talked about last week... of, ...of there being inventories of known vulnerabilities... ...in the bad guys' toolkits. And they're keeping these vulnerabilities... ...offline and doling them out as necessary... There's a chance that the bad guys already know about this, but haven't had an an opportunity or a need for another Java zero-day vulnerability. the The news of this hitting, though, means for them that there's a window, and so that would that would mean that they would immediately bring out the implementation of this in exploits, knowing that now that Oracle knows about it there's a time limit on how long they're going to be able to use it. I mean, th- that's the reality from everything we've seen of today's cybercrime world is that, is that all of these, all of these web exploits are, are potentially known and the evidence is that bad guys have an inventory and they bring them out you know as they need them but but learning about this publicizing it this way means they would be they would be induced to use it now because they know pretty soon it's going to get shut down so
0: you know does that don't, change don't- now that they do these uh, exploit kits um in other words there what what this this model that you're talking about is some you know elite hackers who you know are saving this stuff in the, and they have a reserve and a reservoir, but it seems like many of these exploits, especially uh, exploits like this that are uh, that take place over the web, are just being uh, sold into kits, and so they're added as soon as they're discovered, they're added into a kit, uh, which bad guys buy.
1: Um, right now, normally what'll happen is the the for example, Rapid Seven is the group that is managing the Metasploit kit, and so once it's once the, the nature of the vulnerability is public, then Rapid7 will immediately stick it into, I mean, in a matter of hours, stick it into um, a new module in Metasploit, and then it's available widely. So, so that's, that, that's sort of a different aspect of this. Right now, as far as we know, no one, no one except uh, the security explorations guys know the de- well an oracle know the details of what they have found we have a we have a few little clues but presumably this well presumably this is obscure we don't know yet whether there whether this exists in someone's inventory but the the rapid 7 metasploit folks probably unless they were really motivated to go after this they'll wait until it appears in a zero-day vulnerability. Once that happens, then it becomes public. So, essentially, that their role is mass availability of something that was previously limited in availability, and that's not good either. I mean, it's bad because, as you said, Leo, it turns it from something you might have to have some expertise to use right. into a drop-in toolkit where it's, it's like, oh, now we just yeah. exactly. And so, and so the the problem here is is that 8 years of 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 this problem's being present means for example it's in all of our dvd players now that's not maybe a problem but our dvd players are now on our networks right and so it's like okay um you know dvd players all have java in them now it's one of the things that oracle brags about and i noticed the sticker you know on the box and and the the back panel of mine so so there's there are there are problems with java itself having been vulnerable this long so it's not necessarily just drive by web attacks but but because of the pervasiveness of java in devices which are not you know just mainstream smartphones and 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 laptops and and desktops if bad guys had a really focused targeted desire to get in somewhere very much like we saw with stuxnet where where that entire that that entire s- enterprise was focused on one specific target we want to mess up the nuclear enrichment program in iran S- similarly you know we there's java all over the place you know a billion is a big number so uh th- th- this is unfortunate that a problem like this has been found which has such long legs so what i um, mean
0: do we know is it in cars i mean what kinds of devices uh, do you think it's Java five or later. Yeah, it?
1: I bet it's in cars. So I mean it is the 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 problem is it has been an a very popular implementation language for quite a while. I mean it's in it's Java is in my Blackberry. My Blackberry uses Java. Um I mean like as a core as a core runtime for the Blackberry. So so that's a problem. And you know, dishwashers and microwaves and you know it's just a it, it, it's it really is pervasive it is it is in devices of all size and and makeup now if bad guys can't get to the device by its nature then that's not such a problem or if the device isn't isn't able to do any damage if it became exploited right then that's but, not a problem yeah and you, yeah so your car's not online
0: on the other hand having it hacked would be the high risk uh, enterprise. Right.
1: <laughs> so, right. <laughs> right. I think we probably haven't uh, seen the, the last, last of, yeah, yeah. Yeah, of this one. Um, as it turns out, the the guess that I had, which was actually. Not a big deal because it was pretty clear from the n- meaning of the acronym. We talked last week about the 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 this year's follow on to the beast to last year's beast exploit. This one called crime from our buddies who hang out on the beach sipping umbrella drinks. Uh, that was crime C R I M E, which was unveiled at the Echo Party uh, late last week. The acronym stands for compression ratio information leak mass exploitation, um, and it nice acronym. Yeah, it's one of those. As you said, you, you reverse engineer the acronym. You say, "Well, let's call it crime." Yeah, red About yeah. we we have compression ratio CR. Oh, information CRI. What ends with CRI? Oh, M E. Now, what what can that stand for? Oh, mass exploitation. Perfect, easy. Yeah, works. So um, this essentially creates a serious problem for Internet on-the-fly compression because – well, and, and so when I talked – when we talked about this last week, I talked about how there had been mitigation already put in place. Well, what that turned out to be is Chrome and Firefox – both immediately shutting down compression. Chrome and Firefox were the only two browsers which were standards-compliant enough, or you might say advanced enough, to be supporting the compression, the, the SSL TLS compression that is in the spec and has been, I think, since '04. It's been there for a long time. The idea being that that there is a specification actually in the SSL specification for for how the endpoints can negotiate and perform compression. Um, so that's at a that's at the connection level as opposed to at sort of at what you call the application level. At the application level, the server the 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 browser can say independent of the connection i'm able to decompress using deflate and gzip for example and then the server says oh good we're going to save bandwidth by compressing those things before we send them to you, since you've said you know how to decompress them, so that's that's at the application level or at the protocol at at the at the HTTP protocol level. It's also possible to do compression at a lower level, down at the SSL link level, essentially. So only Chrome and Firefox ever did that. They no longer do that as a consequence of what um, these guys found. Also, Speedy used to do that and speedy no longer does that basically compression has been has been at at this level has was immediately backed off of now it's not news that compression can leak information that is sort of generically it's been well understood for many many years that that compression and privacy were at odds with each other for exactly the reasons I explained last week, which is because the amount of compression you get is a direct function of what you're compressing. If the bad guys have any control over what is being compressed, that allows them to probe for, for what they don't know, what they don't have control over, which they're trying to determine. So in this attack, they arrange to put their own data in front of unknown data and then compress the entire packet. If what they're putting in front is very similar to what they don't know is behind, it compresses highly because the compressor sees that it's already seen something similar, so instead of instead of storing it again, it just points to what it's already seen. thus you get the compression. so by by fiddling around with with injecting their own data in front of the the unknown for example cookie in the in, in an HTTP transaction, they're able with surprising efficiency it takes about six transactions to dec- to decrypt one byte of Cookie value, so doesn't take a long time. They're able to crack um, cookies which are being used for sessions and then hijack a session. So, so it for the moment, w- the industry needs to rethink this. Um, it's going to be necessary to add some protections if we, in order to put compression back into our links. Compression is something we want. It's a tremendously efficient, especially when you're compressing like big web pages where there's just t- in a huge amount of redundancy. You know, you've got English in large large blocks of text. You've got all that HTML um, uh, representation, which is highly redundant. You'd really, I mean, uh, you get a huge gain in compression. But as we've seen, it's also possible, I mean, as we now know, This was something that went from a theoretical problem in in information theory, like, oh, compression and privacy are at odds, to, hey, that's true. You know, here's how you use that fact. And these guys have. So what's happened is the browsers have have all backed off of this in order to protect us so that the crime – so we, listeners – users don't have to do anything the browser manufacturers have already taken care of it that this all got shut down before this went public so we're safe and the problem is well understood very clear now and i would imagine at some point we will come up with some solutions so you know really really interesting attack yeah no kidding Yeah, just another one of these where clever you know it's (laughs) very clever And it's difficult to foresee these problems, but once they're made clear, we know how bad they are. A lot of news, um, I guess grumbling maybe is the right term, for an error message or a warning message or an advisory message that Microsoft's Hotmail began delivering since we last podcasted. Um, People logging into Hotmail received a, a surprise notice that said, Microsoft account passwords can contain up to 16 characters. <laughs> and here's where it gets good. If you've been using a password that has more than 16 characters, enter only the first 16. Well, okay. Okay our users know what this means. means they're not hashing, right? Well, it means we don't know for sure. So here's what it could mean. I mean, 16 it, is a lot, so it's not like it's a too short. That's my feeling too. 16 well-chosen, wacky characters is more than enough. Yeah. So that really wasn't the issue. It's what does this mean about what's, what Microsoft is doing? So... So so what we know is that if you, that you're able to enter only the first 16 and log in even if you're if the password you had been entering was longer. So passwords may have been stored in plain text and now only the first 16 are being checked. And, and I'd be surprised if that were the case but it's certainly possible. Remember that you know, Microsoft bought Hotmail. You know, acquired it at some point um, after it existed. So it was run, but they rewrote it because it was running on
0: Apache. It was a Lamp Stack uh, app. True, and they true. rewrote it to work with .dot uh, NET. So they probably, Al-
1: although in rewriting it, they, as far as I know, didn't force everyone oh, to to revamp their password. So they must have
0: maintained the system. That's right.
1: That's they may have what they may have yeah, yeah le- le- left that legacy stuff in place. So maybe they were stored in plain text and now only the first 16 are being checked. Or uh, they may have been stored in plain text and Microsoft recently decided to switch to hashing and and look at the news. I mean, all of this leakage of plain text passwords. Imagine that that Hotmail had been in plain text and they said, oh, we got to hash these passwords. So so what they could have done is decide to switch to hashing, but for some reason, seems arbitrary to me, but you know, Microsoft sometimes is inscrutable in what in their thinking. Maybe they decided to only use the first sixteen characters in their hash. So that's a possibility. Or they we're always hashing only the first 16 characters, and now Microsoft is just informing people. That is, they may have always (laughs) been throwing more than 16 away and just decided, well, we ought to just, you know... I mean, the wording of this, Microsoft account passwords can contain up to 16 characters. This feels to me like it's broader than just Hotmail, like Microsoft's trying to... To like, you know, because they've got SkyDrive and they've got all these, you know, they're in general going cloud mode. So there are other ways and things that, that Microsoft's users will be logging in to. So maybe they're trying to unify this. And Hotmail was sort of weird compared to the way they were doing other things. And so they're trying to pull it all together.
0: Anyway, it, it does have two factor, doesn't it? Or maybe not. I have to look. They've, You know, they're moving everybody to Outlook.com instead of Hotmail anyway. Right. BSD, by the way, not a LAMP stack. My apologies.
1: So what what we do know is that it, given their ability to log people in with only the first 16 characters, it could not be that the entire length of the user's longer passwords were being hashed because they would have a hash for the whole thing and there's no way then... For the, by the virtue of the strength and power of hashing, there's no way for Microsoft to to know what the hash would be for only the first 16 characters. So we we do know that they were not hashing the users' entire passwords historically. They were either in plain text or they were only they were only hashing the first 16 characters um, or you know, they were always only doing that. They, they, they may have switched to that or they may have always been only doing, hashing the first 16 characters and now just sort of letting people know, don't bother typing anymore. You're not getting any better security. I don't know. But people <laughs> got upset. Um, also, uh, there was a little mistake that was discovered in Samsung phones.
0: Yeah. Uh, uh, the GS3 that I use as a matter of Yeah. Way. Yeah. Uh,
1: so it's, it was a flaw in Samsung's, what they call their touch software. So first of all, this is only Samsung phones and, and not the pure Android phones. So like not the Nexus, um, only, uh, some galaxy S two and S three class phones were susceptible. Um, and in some cases, this depends upon which firmware version was running, um, Samsung has since updated their uh, S3, the Galaxy S3 firmware, to fix the problem. But some S2 models may still be at risk. Uh, And also, apparently, uh, uh, the Galaxy Ace and the Galaxy Beam are also affected. Um, uh, Okay, so what's going on? The vulnerability is the result of the way the native samsung dialer app handles what's called ussd codes and telephone links ussd codes are special combinations of characters that can be entered in the keypad to perform certain functions you know those have always
0: made me nervous
1: yeah and it turns out that they just had a bunch that were not documented it's like okay so and here again this is just pure obscurity which is never a good idea, especially when something is it's this simple. So these were like, you know, enabling call forwarding, accessing hidden menus on the device. Yeah, and some of these uh, are
0: known. I mean, uh, when you yeah. do call forwarding, uh, you know, uh, Google Voice, for instance, will tell you what to enter, you know, the weird thing to enter. Um, yep. and, there, and there's also, there's usually a, a, a service mode and things like that.
1: Yeah. So on Samsung phones, turns out, there's a ussd code for factory resetting the phone oh and also presumably <laughs> another one for nuking the phone's sim card oh, since wow. that's been that's been reported to oh. be possible as well oh requi- so, and there's no check it just just does nope. it it requires no user interaction oh. it doesn't pop up and say are you really sure you want to factory reset your phone who knows why they did it this way? They just thought, oh, well, no one will find out about it, you know, and maybe... And I'm sure it's you know, long and obscure, but that doesn't mean anything. No, no, no. Star pound zero six pound. That's it? Yes. Don't type that, anybody. <laughs> don't don't enter that into oh, your Samsung phone. my goodness. That's all it is. So, okay, the good news is there is a test. Oh, I, I should mention that What's what's bizarre is that... On top of all of that, so that's if you are using the native dialer. Well, it turns out that for, you know, various fancy ease-of-use purposes, if you, it's possible for other Samsung apps to forward those to the dialer. As a consequence, QR codes, uh, NFC events, and URLs... Dropped into the standard browser will invoke the dialer and can maliciously give it that code and wipe your phone completely. You know, immediately. So they could text send you a text message that would wipe your phone. Uh, don't know if text. No? Me- I'd okay. be surprised, but certainly QR codes and 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 URLs. So the the concern is that you could have a malicious website that would tend to be visited by Samsung owners, and they would go there and their phone would wipe itself. Wow. So, there is a test for anybody who's worried or wondering, androidcentral.com slash ussd hyphen test. And... Uh, it's a benign test. Again, androidcentral.com slash U-S-S-D T-E-S-T. Obviously do this on your phone. On your phone, <laughs> just, yes. You go, that, but... on, you go oh, <laughs> there with, with your phone's native browser. With, oh, with the, oh, okay, stock, not Chrome.
0: Somebody's a stock your,
1: browser, okay. Your, your phone's stock browser. Okay. Go there and then click the button. If you, uh, What will be shown if your phone is vulnerable is your own phone's IMEI number, the International Mobile Equipment Identity number, Um, if you see that, it's very likely that your phone is vulnerable. Wow. But if your dialer just pops up showing you either nothing or that star pound zero six pound, then that's been disabled on your firmware
0: and you're probably safe. And Samsung did push an over-the-air update. Many of you got that today.
1: Right. Yeah. What is that? And so, Androidcentral.com slash U-S-S-D hyphen T-E-S-T. Why, why couldn't they just make it shorter? Okay. I
0: know. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna try it on my now. I'm uh, I'm running um the good news is I'm running a uh uh cyanogen mod. I'm running a mod on here. So I'm I'm sure there are other vulnerabilities,
1: <laughs> but not that one. <laughs> now, okay, so at this point, if our users or our listeners have, for example, Galaxy S2 phones for whom, for for which, updated firmware is not yet available. Um, if you switch to a third-party dialer, such as apparently there's one called Dialer One, D I A L E R space O N E. Dialer One isn't susceptible to this. So moving away from the Samsung dialer, it's Samsung's dialer that knows about these special codes. If you switch to a third-party dialer as your default dialer for the phone, then you'll also be safe, and you can of course verify that using this androidcentral.com test. Wow, yeah,
0: that's amazing. So when you get to that page, it has a, a test, and you have to click that. Click here to begin. Right, and then it will run the thing. And what happened with me is the dialer popped up with that string. That's that star pound. Yep. So and then Zero I dialed six, it, out. but it said nothing happened. So good. It's okay. You don't what you don't want is for it to display your IMEI.
1: Correct. If you see that, that's not good news. And that's a long much longer number. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's like a what, huge serial number right, kind of right. thing. Wow. So uh as you mentioned uh earlier, Leo, uh the IEEE.org dot org website turned out to have a rather substantial username and password leak. Um, A a TA, teaching assistant at the University of Copenhagen, um, uh, Radu Dragusin, reported that he found 100,000 usernames and passwords stored in plain text that had been sitting for a month on a publicly accessible FTP server belonging to the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers, the IEEE. Amazing. Um but after finding that he poked around the internet some more and found fifteen web pages worth of fourteen month old IEEE wow. log folders on a Russian website, which tells us that the IEEE files may have been publicly accessible for more than a year. Mm. So another instance of whoops, um uh you know information leakage from a site that we would hope would be more secure than that and,
0: and by the way, I, th- I believe Radu is a listener because he uh, he was in our chat room earlier
1: oh cool, yeah,
0: so there you go
1: nice and job finally, um, yes, very, finally, um, Bruce Schneier, our good friend cryptographer uh, guru in the industry who 's uh, designed a bunch of great ciphers. Uh, had an interesting blog post. He mentioned that the six-year running competition to select the successor to the SHA-2, or SHA-2 as it's sometimes pronounced, family of secure hash algorithms is coming to an end. And that the NIST, the standard setting body, is nearing... Very near to choosing a the final um, hash for what will be called SHA three. So this is similar to what we saw happening years ago, where Rindal, the Rindal cipher, won the next generation cipher competition to to be assigned the the designation of AES. Uh, for for that standard, the advanced uh, encryption standard. So in this case, they started off six years ago with 64 contenders for this title, uh, now winnowed down to just five, one of which is Bruce's team's own, they call it SKEIN, S-K-E-I-N, which is based on... Bruce's three-fish large block cipher. We know that Bruce did blowfish, which is still strong and useful. Then he did another generation called two-fish, and now he has three-fish, and this sounds like a Dr. Seuss book. Um, By the way, fish, one fish, two, two fish, fish, three fish.
0: Radu, yes. Radu came back in the chat room and he said, and not only that, but I use Squarespace for the uh, site that I uh, demonstrated this on. So, not only is he a listener, he supports our sponsors. Thank you, Radu. Isn't that awesome? That Very is great. Good. I love that. I'm sorry. Back to the one fish, two fish, three
1: fish, three blue fish. fish, blue <laughs> fish. Yes. <laughs> anyway, so blowfish. <laughs> so, um, what happened was. Okay, I, I I okay. I I should explain that Bruce thinks none of this is necessary. Even even if his own if his own hash wins, he explains in his posting that six years ago, this competition was initiated for the successor to the SHA two family because it was just assumed that with computers getting faster and crypto getting better and everybody being better at at understanding vulnerabilities and cryptanalysis the assumption was made that the SHA2 family would not withstand the test of time and he says but 6 years later SHA512 which of course is a is a is a hash that gives us a 512-bit digest, more bits being better. For example, the SHA-256 is there and it's fine. But SHA-512, he says, is holding up extremely well. That is, we don't need anything more. And so he points out that none of the five currently surviving contenders for the SHA-3 crown is enough significantly superior to really justify switching. He says some are faster, but not orders of magnitude faster. Some are smaller, but not orders of magnitude smaller. Um, And he said that when SHA-3 is announced, he's going to recommend that unless the improvements are critical to users' applications. That is, for example, if speed really matters, or if size really matters, there you know, whatever it, this next generation is, will probably be faster and smaller. So there is that aspect of evolution in our ability to design a secure hash function. That we have seen over the course of, of since SHA2 family was designed. He said, but unless those improve those improvements are critical he's going to recommend that people stick with the tried and true SHA-512 at least for the time being at least until there's some reason to move so i thought that was that was interesting that uh that what we've got now is holding up now essentially we'll have a assuming that NIST does pick some i mean or one We'll have a successor sort of waiting in the wings that is ready to be deployed. And you might just, you know, go ahead and use it for new things. But absolutely no reason, as far as we know at this point, to stop using the existing SHA-2 larger um, digest hashes because they're, as far as anyone knows, completely strong and solid. That's actually, how
0: rarely do you hear that? I know. (laughs) Usually it's like, oh, they're broke. No, these work.
1: Yeah, I know. They work. Um, I I got a note, a a tweet from a listener of ours, Thomas Fores in Chicago, uh, who brought to my attention Adobe's release of a very nice looking new font for that might be of interest to any of our coding listeners. It's called Source Code Pro. And if you just Google the phrase source code pro, uh, the first link is to their announcement and there's a number of links there. Uh, and it's very attractive. It's a, they, they did a, um, a sans, a source sans, which is a a very nice sans serif type face, but then the source code pro is a monospace. Typeface, meaning you know that it, it's, every character is the same width, so that they all line up nicely, and they it they paid atten- a special attention to um, disambiguating that's one of my favorite words. I don't get to use it often disambiguating look-alike characters. So you know, for example, the numeric zero has a dot in its center um, at, to help make it very clear that it's not a capital O uh, alphabetic. Um, so I just want to let people yeah, know. Yeah, I like that.
0: A, I tell you, cause I have passwords that have zeros, big capital zeros and, oh, uh, capital O's and zeros in them. And I can never tell the difference. I like a font yep. that'll let me know that.
1: Yep. And like the number one and the lowercase L, L yep. those get confused. Yep. And yeah, so this is, this is very nice. They, they did a great job of making them extremely clear. Good. And then finally, we've talked about this before, but I, or actually relative to Nevada But just yesterday, California joined Nevada in officially allowing autonomous self-driving automobiles on the roads. It's like, okay, I guess if you look at the car passing you and there's no one there, uh, it's not, you know, you're not seeing a ghost. That's just Google driving by.
0: Did you see the announcement uh, where uh, Jerry Brown's talking about it? and, uh, And, of course, Sergey Brin's there in his Google Glasses. I guess he wears them all the time now. And it's just strange <laughs> as heck. I mean, it feels like it should have been Arnold Schwarzenegger. Then it would have been like, okay, the Terminator, I get it. I, but it was, I, a,
1: it was a weird picture. I'll see if I can find that. So um, the news is that Arizona, Hawaii, Florida, and Oklahoma, for some reason, are also currently considering similar legislation. I, I, I am curious about why Florida and Oklahoma and Hawaii and Arizona, but you know, well, I they guess got, they're the going for every
0: state eventually. That's the idea. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And I've been meaning to mention that I'm still on my stair climber reading uh, "Kill Decision" by Daniel Suarez, and oh, it is just terrific. He's great. So when you get through with Zero Day and um, uh, and Trojan Horse, Mark Rosenovich's books, if you haven't picked up "Kill Decision," I'm i'm just really enjoying it it's just it's great writing very nice steve gibson i just wanted to pass along
0: before you i know we, we probably want to do a spin right and everything but uh, uh radu as i mentioned uh the guy who discovered the ieee flaw uh is in our chat room and he 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 just passed along he said here's the tweet um that he, uh this is the site that he announced this on and he said to uh uh, me and to Squarespace. I want to say I'm a happy customer. Slashdot could not bring this IEEE log down that he created, and look at all the uh, the, the the bandwidth. All of a sudden, the seventy four thousand page views at the peak, sixty thousand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's uh, cool. That's really great, Radu. It's nice to have you as a uh, as a Security Now uh, listener. They're doing big things. Uh, can I also mention Teespring real quickly? Just uh, I just want to. Uh, there's only a few days. There's like a, a two weeks left on this um, unique T-shirt, and we will send you one, Steve. By the way, because uh, I think what we send all the hosts. So we've. This is just something a little different that we're doing. Um, we have a T-shirt store and everything, but uh, it it turns out that there's it, this. Is, <laughs> if you do one of a kind designs that are for a limited time. People really love that. So we are going to start doing this. These were This was a user-submitted design. And uh, it's got all the... You can't tell, but all the names of the shows with, make up the Twit logo. That's on the back. On the front, it just subtly says twit.tv. And we're selling this. We're going to raise uh, quite a bit of money. We're trying to raise enough money to buy a new streaming box, which is about $20,000 streaming box. Uh, and so far, we've sold 1,054 shirts, so we're a good way along. There are... Um, Uh, a few let me see it says here 16 days left so a little more than two weeks left if you want this shirt teespring t-e-e spring.com slash twit and uh, we will be we've reached our uh, goals so we know we'll be printing them you get uh, to choose between uh, two very uh, high quality 100 percent cotton shirts uh, american apparel and uh, fruit of the loom so you get to choose and we have all sizes so this is what we're. Yeah, I think you can buy one in Switzerland. But this, uh, I think, international as well. This is something we're trying a little different. This is a different manufacturer. They do very high quality silk screen shirts. A little more pricey, um, but I thought I'd pass that along. Teespring. T e e s p r i n g dot com slash twit. And I think we would love to do a security now shirt at some point. So uh, if you have a design uh, mm. that you'd like to submit for a security now shirt, email. Uh, Glenn with two ends at twit.tv with uh, your design, and uh, we picked this one from a bunch of uh, user submissions, so it's kind of fun. Yeah, that'd be cool, yeah Yeah, security net. We should have a security now shirt. Yeah. T maybe a TNO shirt. Wouldn't that be fun? Ooh. It says trust Ooh, no that's one. Perfect. That's Wouldn't that be good. Perfect. <laughs> yes. To, actually, that's we that's don't that's even that's need a design. in simple black letters. That's trust that's no it. one. <laughs> that's I love perfect. it. <laughs> Anyway, thank you for letting me interrupt. Go right ahead.
1: No, actually, the first question is, uh, is, is from a listener all about right. SpinRight, So I figured I would I would kick off our Q&A Simplify with that. Simplify things. Hey, yeah. I uh, downloaded all those
0: uh, source fonts uh, already from Adobe. I have a, a font folder that I keep on Dropbox, so whenever I set up a new computer, uh, I have the fonts that I like. And among them, I have nice. a, a number of programmer fonts in Consolata, Droid Sans, Monaco, yep. But uh, this one looks really nice. Looks better yeah, than the console. consoles is a very nice. Consulas one. is a, in is a free version of Inconsolas, yeah. Ah. Yeah. All right, starting with our questions and our first question from Dustin B in Seattle, Washington. Wait, right? Which Q&A are you reading? Oh, wait a minute. Number 360. <laughs> Holy cow. This is from July. <laughs> that would ex- that would explain why the notes didn't. Yeah,
1: because I cannot pronounce the name. I was going to saddle you with the pronunciation. Oh, of, oh you know what? Of, I've our, got list, this of this our listener
0: sorted in ascending, not descending order. Let's go. In, let's Norway. Let's do today's questions. <laughs> How about that, Leo? This is from. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Okie dokie.
1: Okie-dokie-dokie. Maybe somebody in I'm the chat re- room I'm not reading that. Help me with but, this one. But it sounds like a great guy.
0: Ervalev, Sturavurpe in post Solheim, Norway, posts a terrific question. I hope Odinga, I hope I did that justice. About, he's our, he's is our regular uh, Norwegian listener. About Spinrite's level one operation. I am currently running Spinrite on a SATA drive connected directly to the motherboard that has been drastically slowing down lately. I started a level one scan, and after a couple of analyzed sectors, the read speed went down for about 10 minutes. When I picked up again, right. had marked the sector as recovered. Green R. Now, this is level one, so I was wondering, does this mean the sector has successfully been recovered or that a problem was found and can and will be fixed by running a level two plus at a later time? If it has indeed been recovered, how did it do it? Since level one's not supposed to write any data to the disk. Longtime SN listener, us utmost trust in Spinrite, just a little bit confused. Says well, I
1: ran- <laughs> so. Um, I ran across this when I was going through the mailbag for the QA, and I thought, well, I'll just answer that question as uh, my mention of Spinrite for the week. Um, what happens is. A level one scan we've talked about before because it would be good, for example, with SSDs where for recovering SSDs where you do not want to be writing necessarily to SSDs. It also is the quickest way of running SpinWrite on a drive where there's a problem. Essentially, SpinWrite runs forward at full speed. Reading just simply reading every single sector from the drive until, and if it has a problem, now it's it's possible that when Spinrite asks the drive to read a sector, that the sector first of all could could read perfectly, which you know w- would result in no change. It's also possible that the drive could, when asked to read a sector, see that. Enough correction, uh, th- that is, enough error correction is necessary that it's outside of the drive's safety margin or comfort factor. So the drive would, on the fly, recover the data, that is, apply error correction, then move that sector somewhere safe and 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 lock that spot on the drive so that it cannot be used and return the data. In which case, again, SpinWrite would show no problems. It, it helped the drive to do that. That is, running spinright on the drive was beneficial, but you still wouldn't see anything. Where you see something like this green recovered is where... Spinrite asks the drive or encounters in its reading a sector which will not read. That is, the drive attempts to read the data and says, I can't. It it is unable to, even with error correction, to successfully read the, the data that was originally recorded there. Well, so it returns a... Uh, this sector won't read, a, a, a sector error. Well, other software gives up. Spinrite's job is not to give up. So what it does is it, with caching, with the drive's own internal caching disabled, so that that doesn't get in the way, it, go, it reads a randomly chosen sector on the drive, which pushes the head over to some other sector then it returns to the sector that it is trying to read. So what that does is it it moves the head a random distance and direction from the target sector, and then brings the head back. So the chances are that that the head, because it, we don't have zero friction, we have low friction, and we have friction working together with the servoing going on. But the chances are the head will. End up in a slightly different position, just just a little bit different, or the the sector we're coming from will be rotationally in a different place. So we end up land we we end up getting onto the target track at a different location. So things have settled differently. The idea is though that we keep asking for this sector over and over and over giving the drive essentially every possible opportunity to read it and the then the idea is we just need it one more time the driver said can't fix it we say are you sure are, are you really sure are you really really sure and not just redundantly asking but also asking in slightly different ways each time because we are we're arriving at that sector in a different way each time. Finally, and this is what, what, um, I can't pronounce his name, Irv Liv. Irv-a-lube. Irv Liv. Irv Liv. I am just the, making it up. <laughs> what he saw and what so many of our users find is that, yes, Spinrite, by, by being really patient and persistent, g- gets the drive to read the sector w- just one last time. The drive says, oh, my God, i am got it. I was able to correct it. It sees that it was at the probably at the limit of its ability to perform error correction to recover the sector. But that's fine. That's all it needed was one last success. Then on that read. It does what it did before. It marks that spot as bad. Don't use that anymore. Grabs a spare sector out of its spares pool, puts the data there, and reports to Spinrite, ah, I, I got the data. Here it is. So so the, so what Spinrite sees is that it got sector error, sector error, sector error, sector, uh, sector error many, many times, and then finally a successful read. So the data got recovered. It puts a green R there and moves on. So we are doing a read-only scan of the drive at level one, but still able to perform data recovery and repair when we hit spots that need it. Interesting. Thank
0: you. Yeah, it's cool. Cal in the UK has our next question. How do you keep up I get this question a lot with all the security news, Steve. If you, I was wondering how you keep up to date with uh, with security news, if you could recommend some good sites, I try to keep up with the tech news and only find out about the security stuff if tech blogs cover it or from your show. I fear there, I feel there must be some good security news sites out there. I'd like to know what you read, and you know, I wish my- you, I wish you'd make an OPML or something of this. It'd be very handy.
1: Um, my my approach has evolved over time as a really, as a consequence of my increasing use of Twitter. Um, I used to be on my own, essentially uh, operating without the benefit of an, the incredible dragnet of listeners that we have who make sure that I know what's going on. And so my strategy really has evolved. Um, my My main go-to, it's not a site uh, resource, is the SANS Security Institute, S-A-N-S. It is, it's possible to subscribe uh, to their mailing list and they send out a couple times a week um, various types of news and and they do a a a compendium very nicely organized of what's happening so you know they're very active in in tracking what's going on um and so i was relying on them almost exclusively i mean i would i you know would sort of Uh, We have Brian Krebs and we have, you know, other security columns and things. But there wasn't anything really very organized for me except the SANS Security Institute was just – it was my crucial resource. And now what's happened is thanks to, you know, SGGRC on on Twitter, we've got all of these listeners who themselves have – all these resources that they're checking. I mean, I see slash dot. I'll get I'll get duplicates often, and it's I sort of smile because I know then the uh, you know like where the source of that was, and our listeners are are keeping track of that. But I get the benefit of the concentration of all of our listeners. You know, seeing something that they know would be interesting to me and to other listeners of the podcast who just make a mention uh, at sggrc. And I read my feed uh, and then go in, and pursue that. So, and then we just uh, all listen to you, and it makes it very easy. <laughs> and everybody listens here, yes. I,
0: I was just looking because, you know, I have a fairly long list of things I peruse uh, on my Google reader list. And um, I was just looking at what I read. And I do – Sands is great. And I also – Krebs on security. We love him. Yep, He left the Washington Post, but he has his own uh, blog now, and it's very good. Schneier on security. You were just talking about Bruce. Yep. and then there's a security focus uh, site that I also, uh, from years gone by, used to follow. Yep. Security focus. So those four are pretty good s- sources of information uh, for me. Um, and but you know, security now is the best. If you just listen to this show.
1: Well, we do a lot of filtering. You know, there, there, there's stuff that is like eh, doesn't quite make the cut. Um, and I, I try to make those decisions and and make them correctly. Yeah. Very nice.
0: Always good to know. Mark in China has a problem. He's worried. Worried about man in the middle. Man in the middle. Could be a problem. He says, "Stephen Leo, thank you for an informative podcast and elevating my status in the family to super geek and tech support hero. I admit to not understanding everything, but I eagerly listen every week in the hope that my IQ might increase. I'm an English expat living and working in China. Please withhold my name and exact location. And I did. <laughs> Not his real name. I'm confused on an issue, and I would like a clarification. I understand SSL and TLS are secure, and that as long as I'm connected this way, I'm safe. However, I seem to remember Leo mentioning if an employee in the U.S. accesses a secure website from within the company network, the employer could be a man in the middle. My question are, is, is Leo right? And if so... If the company was expanded to a country, say China, could there always be a man in the middle or perhaps a country in the middle? Am I confusing secure and non-secure corporate men in the middle? Thank you for all the wonderful shows, all the hard work you put into everyone. As a suggestion for a future episode, maybe you can enlighten your followers on the measures, length, scale, and complexity of nations who want to censor the Internet. The politics don't interest me. The technical aspect doesn't. You know, that's timely because Iran just announced that it's going to do a private Internet Yep. With no Google.
1: <laughs> yep. So, so is uh, Leo full of it? Oh, you no, know, Leo, you've been listening to this podcast for too long. Um, so, um, and this is the question that I referred to as something that we've talked about a number of times, but uh, I see it in various forms when I run through the mailbag. So I thought I would just give a brief review. Um, SSL is provides three things. It provides privacy and we get that from encryption. It provides um, integrity and we get that from, from provisions in the protocol that prevent anything from being modified. So, So not only is it encrypted, but we would detect and then reject any changes in the data. And then finally it provides authentication. So the way this works is, and it's, you know, it's very clever. When we connect to a remote website, it declares its identity with a certificate, which which it sends us while we're connecting. Well, we have no way of knowing whether we believe that or not. So its declaration of its identity is signed, cryptographically signed, by a third party and the presumption is that that third party is is uninterested in our communication and is it is representing that the entity whose certificate it signed is who they said they were that is that entity had to prove its identity to this third party, the so-called certificate authority. And then the certificate authority, the CA, signed their certificate attesting to the fact that that, that that proof had been provided. So when we receive the certificate from the website, we verify that the certificate has been signed by that certificate authority and we accept that authority's assertion. That is, it's, an, it's a certificate authority that we trust. We, meaning our browser and we. So how does that, so that, that all sounds good. How does that break down? Well, that breaks down if our browser has been given an additional certificate authority, for example, in a corporate setting, there might be a, an SSL filtering firewall or proxy. And the way it works is when our browser attempts to connect, for example, securely to Google, that connection has to go out from inside the corporation across the corporation's boundary with the firewall there. The firewall, instead of just passing the connection through, as we would like for privacy, it accepts the connection on behalf of Google, which is not what we want. But what it does is, on the fly, it synthesizes a valid certificate and it signs it and returns it to our browser. Now, our browser would not normally accept a certificate signed by our corporation Firewall, Steve you're, start,
0: Steve, you're starting to break up a little bit. I don't know what happened to the jitter. Just go through the roof there. I wonder if it's us. Oh. Question four, Mr. G. Question four is from Andrew Stevenson in Dorset. And he very kindly provides the pronunciation. Dorset, UK. Software firewalls? What's the point? A friend said to me the other day, why do you run a software firewall when you already have a router? That's how they say it in Dorset. That got me thinking. <laughs> And I wanted to hear what you thought about having a software firewall installed, uh, as well as having a router router, which contains NAT and firewall technologies. I personally have a desktop machine that never leaves the protection of my home network. I have a feeling that having a software firewall is a good thing in terms of security, as relying on a single form of defense is never a good idea. I also feel the fine-tuning of a software firewall and an IDS, intrusion detection system, also makes me more secure. Also, that the software firewall is protecting me from other nodes in the local network, aha rather than just
1: incoming internet traffic exactly um my feeling is that our software firewalls are unintrusive enough that they 're just not a problem. Um, we have interfaces like the operating system has interfaces that allows it to ask for. Inbound to deliberately ask to allow inbound traffic when and where it wants, and that the rest of the time, having the protection of dropping packets which are not expected and are unwanted is a good thing. I mean, really, a firewall sounds like a big deal, all it is is something that looks at some characteristics of data arriving on the wire and decides whether to pass it on upward into the computer or just say eh, I don't think we need that. And so it's it's sort of impressive sounding but in the implementation it's not that big a deal. So I absolutely feel that since it's not something that requires constant maintenance and tending, it's just not in your way any longer. I mean I absolutely like the idea of operating behind a NAT router. That that kind of border protection makes lots of sense. And Leo, you said aha when you read his comment about protecting us from other machines inside our protected perimeter, which is a very good point. Many of the of the state of the art malware tries to Look for local machines that it's able to infect on the land. So having our machines keeping their defenses up, essentially individual little islands which selectively allow data in, I think that, just, that, that it makes sense to have a, a layered security model where local individual firewalls form another layer of protection
0: it enough to have just the Windows firewall or do you want to go out and we you were the guy who discovered and, and really promoted zone alarm
1: way back when well yeah i was I was promoting firewalls before they were in the operating system, and I recognized as Microsoft began picking that technology up themselves that there was you know third party firewalls were endangered just as third party antivirus is now endangered because ultimately Microsoft is going to move those technologies into the OS. So that has happened. You know, and of course, Mac has a firewall as, as part of its technology, as does now Windows. Uh, so, yeah, I just don't think they, that firewalls represent enough of a problem that there's any reason not to have them. They're, they're there. Just leave them on. And use the operating system built in. That's sufficient. Yep. I okay. really think so. All right. Uh, here's a
0: complicated one from Tom Ribbons in Belgium. Uh, he's uh, just as a setup. Last time we talked about the fact that um, the the British like retirement system or something has an entire slash eight block of
1: addresses, which they apparently don't use publicly. Now more than one one two fifty sixth of the entire internet's address space and
0: uh, And of course, as you all know, that with the current system, the IPv4 system, we just are we've run out in fact, we can't we are out of addresses. Um, so uh, we'll have to move to IPv6. but in the meantime, a significant number, millions of addresses are being kind of well, it, it seemed misused by the British trust. Steve, I thought your discussion last week about the 51.0.0.0/8 this address space we talked about, was completely off. Uh, you said, well, all they have to do is change a 51 to 10, which is, of course, an internal uh, designation. This is not as simple as you might think. This would take weeks of planning and preparation and will cause issues along the way. And what for? When the IANA still had blocks of IPs to give to the RIRs, I believe they were crunching through them at the rate of 2-8s a month. That would mean even if we got that slash eight back, it will only move the problem away for a couple of weeks. Seeing that there's no way any sizable organization could renumber their whole network in two weeks, this is not a viable trade-off. Even if we would find ten such companies who could come back slash eight blocks, and I think there are probably that many, it would still only help for another half year. You know, just I, as well as I do that the real solution is IPv6, and that adoption will only happen when everybody is forced. To adapt, it might cause a little mayhem uh, when it really will be absolutely necessary. But delaying it another year is not going to help a thing because we'll hardly be better prepared. As there's almost no incentive currently to do so. Tom Ribbons, I
1: think he's right. Well, yes, um, I guess the point was that there there is has there has historically been a huge amount of waste, right? Because we thought, oh. 4.3 billion IPs. We'll never use all of those, and so early on, huge blocks were being handed out very easily. So, so what? The way I view this is is sort of a is a is is a struggle with tension. <clears throat> excuse me, <laughs> with tension between competing interests and and uh, and you know the need to implement ipv6 the problem is people who already have allocations of ipv4 ips they want they want to keep them they've they they've had them for a long time they figure that you know they're entitled to do so um, and they probably have a good point you know they they could make that case convincingly at the same time we need to move to IPv6, but it, it is a pain. I mean, it requires the replacement and upgrading, uh, in some cases of of entire networks and switches and routers within a within a company. And you could also argue that any company that that already has IPv4 is disinclined to move away from four over to six. IPv4 addressing will. Never go away. I mean, probably never. It was first, it will continue to be supported. New allocations will, at some point, will have to be IPv6. But at the same time, looking at huge blocks of unused IPv4 does create some tension because it would be easier to reuse that than it would be to to make the move to IPv6. So first of all, I mean, the one the one area where I disagree with Tom is the rate of consumption. It is no longer the case that slash eights are being consumed at the rate of several a month. Remember, a slash eight, as I as I mentioned before, is is a huge chunk of the Internet. It's it's about a two hundredth of the Internet of the entire address space. That's massive. So today now that we know ipv4 ips are are so scarce they are being managed far more carefully than they were in the past so so i just sort of see this as a, as a set of of competing pressures there is there is pressure to better use existing ipv4 space there is pressure to move to ipv6 and and we are running out of ipv4 space over time yet people who have large allocations of ipv4 that they are not using eh, there's some argument to be made for 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 freeing some of that up to release some of the pressure but yes ultimately new people are going to have to be using ipv6 we'll get to a point where there will be no more IPv4 space.
0: Yikes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, and it seems wasteful. I guess you could go back and forth on this. He, he's And there's a large camp of people that say, well, look, we just got to have the pain or it's not going to happen. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm not sure I disagree with that. Because uh, I don't know if I think what's going to happen is you're going to have uh, ISP NAT. We're never going to go to V6
1: at home. It's going to be the ISPs who do it all. And we're actually – yeah. go ahead. Well, imagine that a company said to another, a squatter, we'll pay you X amount of money for a chunk of your IPv4 space that you're not using because it's easier for us and more, more cost-effective for us to do that than it is to move our infrastructure to IPv6. So – you know there that may happen i did see some dollar signs associated with the the value of ipv4 space and it, it was a stunning
0: well yeah especially yeah. If it gets more valuable as there's less of it
1: yeah i just think that what we, what we'll see is future you know like existing companies that have been around that have ipv4 probably get to keep it now if they're offered chunks of money that makes it makes where it makes sense for them to move, well, maybe they'll choose to give up some. Yeah. But uh, but new allocations will probably be by, you know, by 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 virtue of the fact that there won't be a choice will will be in IPv6.
0: Question six is Chad Jacobson, Burlington, Vermont. He wonders about LastPass. He's quoting the transcription from Elaine of episode 369. Quote, I brought up IMDB, the Internet Movie Database, which I poke around from time to time, and this was an app on my iPad. Same experience under Firefox, for example, in Windows, and it prompted me to log in with IMDB, Amazon, Facebook, or Google. And I thought, Amazon? What? And sure enough, if I click on Amazon, I jump over to Amazon, LastPass sees that I'm being prompted to log into Amazon, does that for me, and I'm back to IMDB, having logged in and it knows my name. You were talking about oath. Right. The ability to uh, use a third trusted third party for login Actually, uh,
1: OAuth. OAuth.
0: Right, right. right. This is an oath. This is OAuth. As an iPad owner and LastPass Premium customer myself, my first question is, were you browsing in the LastPass tab when this automatic login took place? Since, to my best of my knowledge, LastPass does not, unfortunately, integrate directly into Safari or any other browser on either the iPhone or the iPad. I frequently forget to start my browsing sessions within LastPass on my iPad. And should I need to log in somewhere, I'm forced to move my session over to the LastPass app or copy over my very forgettable LastPass-generated passwords into my browser. You may have covered my second question in a past episode, but why can't LastPass be integrated directly into iPhone and iPad browsers? Would Apple need to give away the keys to its iOS kingdom to make this happen? Does the nature of iOS make it functionally impossible, or is it the functionality of LastPass that makes that level of integration unfeasible. My thanks to you and Leo for what is without a doubt the finest technology podcast, sorry, netcast available. I will continue to consume every episode as long as you are willing to produce them. Chad Jacobson also a very satisfied spinrite owner.
1: So, question one okay. first. I the uh, yeah. Olof
0: oh, 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 yeah. question, yeah.
1: Yeah, a couple things. Um I tried to recreate that on my iPad and didn't see what I remember seeing. So I may have misspoken, and this was the behavior I had in Windows with Firefox. Well, and I'll tell you what might have happened. If you picked
0: Facebook or Twitter, the iPad preserves, iOS preserves your Facebook and Twitter for a while and Facebook since iOS 6 credentials. And does ah. the login for you? So I don't Amazon. It would not have done that. But had you right. had you said, "Oh, let me use the Facebook login." Uh, the iOS will. I've my experience has been will do that for you automatically. You you once you once you uh, uh, verify Facebook and Twitter connections on the uh, on the iPad or iPhone, it will log you in to other sites through those places. Okay, so that's maybe um, what happened.
1: Yeah. Um, for, for for what it's worth, I I feel like Chad and I are on exactly the same page, and probably many of our listeners are. Um, and that is this this annoyance that iOS and iOS's Safari mini browser um is unable to integrate with LastPass. This of course is by Apple's design. You bet. They they do not have a a Safari plug-in ecosystem and don't want one. And you can see why they don't want one. Yes, um, it's you know, a security keep- issue. Absolutely. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And so, so um, I similarly use LastPass tab when I'm needing to log in somewhere, and I don't know. I have no idea what my password is on many obscure websites. Uh, LastPass knows what it is, and so I have to switch over to that to that browser and and happily use it to log me in. It's the so- same
0: browser. It's just. It's using the WebKit. It's using the...
1: F- it's using the same technology. Same stuff.
0: Yeah. Yep. I've got not, you know, I input. have... Like, you, yes. If you're a pro user, you LastPass tab is a feature. And I keep forgetting to use that, but you probably... I probably should make that my default
1: browser almost. It's really nice. Yeah. I mean, they did a nice job with it. I'm, well, I'm really it's happy. It's basically with it. the
0: same as Safari. The only issue is, of course, iOS does not allow you to change default browsers either. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you have to remember to launch it each time. Right. Yeah uh and his second question oh yeah you answered it which is why doesn't yeah. apple allow that well that's why yep uh tony wall in port dover ontario wants to know about tomato steve i bought a new router with usb ports in the hope of streaming media for my hard drive to an xbox well even with tech support we couldn't get the xbox to read the hard drive so after searching around i came across the open source tomato firmware after flashing the router everything worked great it's a nice upgrade to the OEM firmware. My question is, as it's open source, how secure do you think it is? Thanks for a great show. You and Leo do a wonderful job. P.S. Love, the Honor Harrington series, and Mark Rusinovich books, so keep those suggestions coming. I would add to Tomato DDWRT, which is another uh, open source router firmware that many routers support.
1: Are yep, they safe? There's, there's DDWRT, which actually has wider compatibility with with router hardware than any other of the of the uh, third party firmwares and it's very feature rich Um, tomato firmware is not quite as feature rich as ddwrt but has a very friendly uh, user interface there's open wrt
0: that's the one ddwrt is older yeah open is the Um, new the new one
1: yeah. Right, and it, and it's meant to be an open platform for add-ons. It does not have a native GUI itself, but XWRT <laughs> adds one to it. Wow. Um, then there's FreeWRT, which is a fork of OpenWRT that's more sort of aimed at de- developer experimentation, but not so friendly. It's command line configuration only. Um, if you wanted to set up a public Controlled hotspot. There's one called Chili Fire, which turns a router into a for-pay or free public access hotspot with the kinds of controls that you might want. And then there's finally one called Gargoyle, which uh, does not have lots of features, but it does offer lots of bandwidth management, uh, like bandwidth management quotas and network access rules. So, so there's there's a bunch of different um firmware is available that sounded a little bit like tony hadn't encountered this before and wanted some assurance that for example tomato which is oddly named uh <laughs> is a good one and it absolutely is you know you and i Leo, have heard about it for years yep. and and, re- and and know of it and recommend it so i would say you could absolutely use that and really any of those uh with confidence we, uh, we
0: Colleen, put tomato on a lot of our uh, old Linksys uh, routers, and we do a know-how episode on how to flash your router firmware. I think we used, uh can't remember, I thought we used uh, OpenWRT. Anyway, um, know-how 3 has that. Twit.tv slash kh, and episode 3 will tell you how to do it. Michael in Europe raises a very good point about a fundamental OAuth weakness and how someone might steal... An unworrieding person's log on credentials. Steve, while I'm sure OAuth is a great solution for avid security now listeners, I'm worried about the millions of less tech savvy computer users like my mom who come across OAuth and get used to it. Wouldn't it be easy to put up a number malicious of uh, w- malicious websites and online shops that leave the impressions of forwarding users for authentication purposes to a faked Facebook, Amazon, or Google site? Then just grab their logon credentials. If the faked authentication site looks real, I'm sure many less security-aware users wouldn't even recognize that the fake OAuth page is sitting on some domain other than Facebook, Amazon, or Google and readily fill in the username and password. In the case of Amazon, the password thief could be out doing his shopping in a matter of minutes. Of course, one could try to educate people to pay attention to the domain that they're forwarded to when using OAuth. But that doesn't seem to be a working solution for people that are already challenged with the many do's and don'ts of using a computer. LastPass could be a solution, as it probably wouldn't readily fill in your login credentials on a faked OAuth Facebook password uh, or Amazon or Google site. But that would require use of LastPass in the first place, which one can't really expect from millions of Internet users that might be easily tricked with a scam. What are your thoughts? Keep up the great work, Michael.
1: (sighs) That is really a good point. Consider what... What the 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 beauty of OAuth, exactly as we were just talking about, for example, when I had the experience of logging into IMDB, is it says it offers you a menu. Uh, and we've always, you know, we, we, we are we're seeing increasingly often log in with your Facebook ID. So more and more sites are doing that. People are saying, Oh yeah, that's what I do. I log into sites with my Facebook ID. And so they click on that. Well, and you bounce over to your facebook to the Facebook login and enter your credentials there, and then you submit that and you bounce back. Michael's point is that the taking you to the net to that Facebook site is under control of the site you're logging your you the primary site you're logging into, so what if it takes you instead to face back? which is a domain they own and present you with the facebook.com lookalike login page and acquire your Facebook credentials just like that. So here, I mean, this is a classic instance of where ease of use is a really great feature, but it's abused because, I mean, the very ease of use gets us accustomed to it. And we stop really paying attention to see where we are. And I think this is—I mean, I, you uh, mark my words: this is going to happen. We will—we will see somebody once OAuth becomes popular. People are going to create fraudulent, you know, bounce sites that that you get taken to in order to steal those those popular credentials. There's right. it's just. It's foreseeable, yeah, and I don't see any I mean, way around
0: it. It's easy enough to create a fake Facebook site and uh, get people to go there by clicking a link on an email or a text message or whatever. I
1: mean, that's – Well, and, but, but but remember here, they control where you go. So you say, yes, I want to log in with Facebook, and you're blinked over to a site, assuming that it's Facebook, that looks like Facebook. How many people are going to carefully look at the URL to make sure that, that that's in fact – where they are,
0: right, it's going to get abused. Jeff Hornig in Indianapolis suggests maybe it's time to revisit the question of periodic password changes. Guys, thanks for all you do to make our cyber world more secure. I think with some of the topics you've covered recently, perhaps it's time to revisit the periodic password change option. Here's my top five list of occasional change rationales. Number five, your phone and tablet display it as you type. Most people don't change this setting. Number four, when email accounts are hijacked, the hijacker does not have to make his presence known. He's watching your online accounts, contacts, etc. He assumes you're using this password elsewhere. Only changing it can kick him out. Number three, in corporate settings, it's very easy to have your password seen when you enter it several times a day. Number two, hopefully you're listening to Steve Gibson and will make a better password now than you did years ago. Number one reason for changing your passwords from time to time, Matt Honan. <laughs> I know everyone railed against this last time it came up, but I think most of the argument against it boiled down to convenience. Keep up the good work. Thanks for having Mark Grasinovich on. Love his books. Jeff Horning.
1: So this was interesting. Um, I'm still, I guess, somewhat dubious about the need to change a really good password just because a month or two of use or maybe a year has gone by. But Jeff's point is that there there is some level of leakage or potential leakage and that changing those passwords periodically makes some sense. And of course, we now have management technology like LastPass that allows a password change to immediately propagate and take hold on all of our devices so it you know the impact on us is much lower than it would have been before so uh, i think that's sort of worth considering the idea that well it's not it, we're not having to manage our passwords to the degree that we did and you know there is some potential leakage of even a really good password so yeah I mean, I am I'm, I guess I'm still not hugely moved, but I can certainly see Jeff's point.
0: We'll leave it as uh, up to you, listening at home, as to what you wish to do. But I think what we were talking or railing against was these kind of mandatory, you must change your password Ugh. every three months. Uh, yes. Dropbox, just for reasons I don't know why, made me change my passwords, which was not a minor inconvenience because – I use Dropbox on a lot of machines, etc. Right, And in fact, what was ironic is uh, because I knew I was going to have to enter it on a mobile and so, so forth all over again, I made it a much easier to remember password <laughs> <laughs> because I, 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 I had a right. LastPass-generated password. And when I thought, well, if I'm going to have to enter this 20 more times everywhere. Uh, <sighs> fortunately, I did not have to enter it because the token was not invalidated by the new password, which seems to me a flaw. <laughs>
1: yeah that's odd <laughs> so i yeah, did so, create so a new you,
0: password but i didn't have to reenter it on most of my mobile devices they already had right. a token
1: you were still logged in with the old password it
0: seems like dropbox kind of dropped the ball on that one they should have it, it, invalidated yeah. the tokens shouldn't they otherwise what's yeah. the point
1: yeah <laughs>
0: <laughs> so i'm kind of doubly angry at them Vern Mastel at the Bismarck Public Library, Bismarck, North Dakota, shares some very real-world experiences with antivirus solutions. I admin the Windows network for a medium-sized public library. The system has more than 200 computers of all varieties, from Windows 2000 to Windows Server 2008 R2. All machines, Windows 2000, wow. All machines, it's like Steve Gibson, are patched on schedule except for Windows 2000, (laughs) have unused or unneeded ports and services closed or disabled, have commercial antiviruses, but still, 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 in the past three years, I've had plenty of encounters with malware infections on staff machines, always as a result of drive-by downloads from hostile websites. For many years, I used Symantec antivirus products. They failed repeatedly. I have tried Others with similar results. Licenses are expensive. Several thousand dollars a year. Lots of money out the window. I've taken the opportunity when faced with compromised machines to test all the various malware detection and removal tools. I could get my hands on. My success rate with this approach is zero. 100% failure. Usually the tool finds nothing wrong when it could actually be run. And uh, when it did, it was unable to do more than simply scuff up the malware. (laughs) That's a good way of putting it. It was like shooting a pistol at a tank. I always end up formatting and reloading the computer. I no longer waste my time testing, I simply go directly to the wipe and reload. Of all the different software products we have on our computers, antivirus, anti malware products are the only ones I can't actually test. Sure mm-hmm. I could feed ICAR files to the AV, but that's hardly a definitive test. Out in the real world, my real world, it's a total bust. I read all the published test reports about how well the commercial products work, but I no longer believe them because I've never been able to reproduce the results. I cannot get a list of websites, say 10 or 20, known to be malicious, and then use sacrificial machines to test the functionality of the antivirus, anti-malware. Instead, I'm just burned over and over. I've contacted all the major anti-vendors about this. None of them will cooperate. Trust us. Our products work. That'll be 2250 please. And by that, I mean 2250 bucks. Oh, and yes, we do take credit cards. Here's a challenge for you. If you were in a situation, how would you test an antivirus product? Thanks for listening. He's got a good point. You know, you, you can't test it in the wild very effectively. I mean, you can only test yeah. it, uh, you know, with, with these fake. Icar is a kind of a synthetic test. It's a, yeah. a virus bundle, which all the yeah. all the anti-malware companies know what's in there. So, it's so always- they make sure they pass that <laughs> they're, test. They're going to pass that one.
1: Yeah, I, I I mean I really sympathize with Vern. I remember there was a period when a good friend of mine, uh, who's really at the expert level with computers, you you, you met Bob when we were oh, up in yeah. Ben. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he he just got a bee in his bonnet once because some friend of his got their machine infected, and he was determined he was going to remove this malware, and I and he just kept calling every couple hours and. And, you know, asking what I thought and asking if I'd heard of this file and so forth. And, I mean, he really knew Windows inside and out. And he was never able to root this thing out of the machine. It had just dug itself in. (laughs) And hidden parts of itself and renamed critical files. And, I mean, it was just – it was impossible to remove it. So I got a kick out of Vern's comment about just scuffing up the malware and, you know, being able – being unable to get rid of it. And I I don't want to say that AV is a scam. I, it's not that certainly. I know that it provides benefits for people or I know that it can – but, you know, when Microsoft began offering their own solutions, uh, it it was easy for me to say, ah, I'm just going to use that. I'm going to use Microsoft Security Essentials. I, you know, it's continuing to score well and get good marks and it's there. And Microsoft doesn't want Windows infected. And I never bet against Microsoft on things that they really care about. They generally end up winning in the long run. So, um you know and you and i leo have historically been uh, not big users of third party av we just we just really watch our behavior and of course vern doesn't have that opportunity because he's right. he knows people are going to e-
0: behave badly in the library
1: yep he's got a 200 machine network of you know miscreants that are going to you know constantly cause a headache so I could sympathize but and yeah. I really get his frustration. I don't know I don't think there is a solution. I think it's you know except accept the fact that these windows are these windows machines are are just prone to this kind of attack. Well maybe he's, just he's, he's an,
0: in an unusually harsh environment. Yes. Um and so that's part of it is that he, you know and also I mean get rid of the Windows 2000 machines they're not being updated so I mean, that's they're their past end of life, so Microsoft is not fixing security exploits. Way past, yeah. yeah. So um, I think if we're all Windows Seven machines, he probably could, with some certitude, lock them down a little bit better than this is a harsh environment. Yeah, um, the country. harshest, the harshest. Right? You got uh, you. Were they public computers as well as staff computers? I, I wasn't clear.
1: Yeah. Well, he said medium sized public library. He mentioned staff machines. Yeah, but. But maybe I, he's, would, I mean, unless if, it's a huge, I mean, 200 machines, that's got to be some some carols that are publicly yeah. available. So those are the, those are the, that's absolutely the worst case scenario. Yeah. Those
0: are uh, inexperienced users who really don't care. Yeah, and so they're doing fact, any kind of weird stuff.
1: They may very well be going to the library to do their bad stuff. Their, yeah, their shady porno you know, porn downloads. Collections. Yeah, exactly. Now, uh, I
0: do think Microsoft's Steady State, which unfortunately Microsoft stopped making, but will be part of Windows Eight, and the Pharonix Deep Freeze, those are used frequently in public uh, uh, yes. com- uh, computers and work quite well. I think that where you just yep. basically every every day you, you start, start fresh. Over. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yep. You, you reboot it and you're, and, you're, and you're just like you were. And that would be, to me, the best solution on those computers. Obviously, not so good for staff computers. I don't understand why people just don't like it when all your data gets deleted each time. But They're uh, uh, picky, you know, Leo. <laughs> uh, but for the public computers, and maybe he is doing that. Maybe these are only the staff computers that are really a problem. Um, I would like tomato basil soup. Thank you very much. I was just being asked a question, and that was the answer. You know what it means? It's time for lunch. Time to say goodbye to Steve Gibson of GRC. He is the creator and, uh, and the guy behind the best hard drive utility ever made. People sometimes say, oh, come on, check disk or Norton Disk Doctor. You don't understand. You don't understand. Steve invented Spinrite before these programs came out. He was the original and since he wouldn't license it to these guys, they invented their own reverse engineered not so good version. There's one and if- only one. Spin right, baby. GRC.com is a place to get it. You can also find free stuff, lots of. It. In fact, Steve's really a good Samaritan. He gives away a lot more. This is the only thing he charges for. Uh, although you're work are you still working on this uh, encryption solution thing you were gonna do?
1: Yeah, it's it's there. I've got a I I I need to get a bunch of the the things I've almost finished, finished, and then it's time to get back and give SpinWrite some time and catch it up with some some uh, things that have occurred well, uh, interesting. since, since six zero was finished. So I'm going to do a 6.1, which will be free for all users of Spinrite because nice. I feel it's my responsibility to keep it current. Yeah. Um, uh, right. And then I'll look around and decide what makes the most sense cool. once I've got – you know, spin right current.
0: As long as you keep doing security now, I don't care what you do with
1: the rest of your life.
0: I'll be right here every week. My friend. <laughs> I just want to see you here on Wednesdays. Absolutely. We, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 1800 UTC. Watch live at twit.tv. Radu did. But you can also uh, listen after the fact. On demand versions are available in a variety of formats. In fact, this show is available in more formats than any other. There's a transcription that Steve pays for and gets done, and that's on his website, as well as a 16 kilobit audio version, which is the smallest you know multimedia version of the show uh we have larger you know higher quality audio and as well as video available on twit.tv slash sn yep hey steve great
1: show what do you do we know what we're doing next week or is it a question you know i've had near field technology on my mind a lot yeah so i think we need to talk about the the technology of near field because it's it's you know being adopted in phones and in laptops and it makes me nervous so let's uh, maybe take a look at uh, whether that's justified very timely because nfc well apple
0: decided yeah. not to put it in the iphone but it is in right. increasing number of android phones it's in my galaxy s3 and i got it in my blackberry yeah so nfc which is a variant a near field variant of rfid yep and we've done an rfid show have we yeah. So maybe we need to. The, yeah, we talking how this is stuff works. It's It'll a fascinating thing because these things are passive, but they. Yes. But from inductance, they get. I mean, it's really a clever hack. Yeah, it's cool. They're lo- like they're like little transponders. I have uh, this is an, an NFC tag, um, which uh, Samsung sells, but other companies sell these. And If you look on the back of it, it's circuitry. Yeah, it's really kind of cool. All right, there's memory
1: on that. <laughs> That's amazing. There's non-volatile memory. There's counters. It's powered by the, you know, it's, it's passive and powered the power by from the, the reader. Isn't that yeah. wild? Anyway, yeah. that would be a good topic.
0: Well, if you want to do that next week, I'm all ears. But no I, think matter we're gonna,
1: what. I think we're going to plow into that and all figure right. out
0: what's going on. Good. Make sure you tune in next week and every week for Security Now. We'll see you next time, Steve. Thanks, Leo. Security Now.